Just a reminder, those who are going to, on the missions trip over to Kiev, need to be in here for a brief meeting right after, right after class. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be refreshed by the truth of your word as we study in Third John again, where we see the emphasis on, on loving by means of the truth, and living by means of the truth, walking by means of the truth, that your word is truth, and as Jesus said, the truth, which is Bible doctrine, will set us free, starting with freedom from the penalty of sin at salvation, and then freedom from the power of sin as we advance and grow in the spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we studied this morning, that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John. 3 John, verse 2. 3 John, verse 2. Now, you may not realize it, but this is one of the most abused verses in all of the Bible. Third John verse 2 reads, Beloved, I wish or I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now I put the King James up there on the overhead because that's the way it's usually read where it's translated. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Now, the reason this is one of the most abused, distorted, misapplied, mistaught verses is because this has been taken out of context and is the key verse for supporting what has been come to be called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. It goes by some other names, but it is a, it is a form of teaching that dominates the airwaves today. You turn on just about any kind of religious broadcast on television with the televangelists on Trinity Broadcasting Network or some of the other networks, and you see the same people promoting this same heresy. And it's, imper- it's important to realize that, as with any heresy, they all follow Satan's big lie technique, and that is if you say something loud enough, long enough, and often enough, people will eventually believe it. And there's a lot of terminology, terminology like uh, in the spirit man, in the natural, terminology that these people use over and again. I can spot somebody. We get a visitor to this church. They come in here. They ask me a question. If they come out of this background, I can spot it within about four or five sentences because of certain terminology. And it's seeped out of just the prosperity, health, and wealth uh, charismatic community and gotten into a lot of different places because this kind of verbiage you hear over and over again. And this is why it's extremely dangerous for people to even watch much of religious broadcasting is because you don't know what kind of horrible stuff you're picking up in the process. You may hear a phrase that sounds good to you, but you don't know the baggage that comes with that. 
phraseology. So it's important to learn some things about discernment and how to spot this kind of teaching. One of the most egregious examples of the abuse that's occurred in terms of the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel was, of course, the scandal that occurred back in the 80s with uh, Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker and the uh, the whole thing that they had going on down uh, in, uh, I think it was in South Carolina, and their PTL club, uh, Praise the Lord Club, and all of the problems that ensued from that. Of course, that got national exposure. And Jim Baker was put in prison because of a fraud and a number of other charges. And later, he repented. I don't mean he got up there and cried like Jimmy Swagger cried. He didn't get up there and weep and moan and get all emotional. But I watched him one night. My respect for him, even though he's still off in some areas, my respect for him really increased because in a very calm manner, in a demeanor totally different from that that you had seen at any other time in his ministry, he was explaining to Larry King what happened to him while he was in prison. And while he was in prison, he took some time to study Greek, something, of course, he should have done years before. And he realized when he studied the Greek of 3 John 2, that 3 John 2 wasn't talking about wealth, financial wealth, and physical health at all. And see, all of those people were deceived because he didn't know anything about the Greek, and neither do so many, many others, numerous other folks that have gotten sucked into that kind of teaching. So I want to spend some time this morning giving a uh, message related to discernment in that area. But before we get there, we have to exegete the passage and see what the passage actually says. Now, last time we began by going over the first verb where Paul actually says, Beloved, I pray, not wish, as you have in the King James Version, but as it's translated in New King James Version and uh, New American Standard and most modern versions, it's pray. It is the Greek verb eukamai, and a present middle uh, passive form. It's a deponent verb, so therefore it has an active meaning. Present uh, middle passive indicative of eukamai for prayer. Sometimes it's used for prayer when a deity is specifically mentioned in the passage or to simply express a wish. It was a common word. It was very common in classical Greek, a very common idiom, and the predominant word for for prayer in uh, classical Greek times. But by the times of the New Testament, it was it was pretty much being edged out by the word prosukomai, which is the main word used for prayer in the New Testament. Now. In this verse, the way it actually reads in the Greek is the first thing that you have, as you pretty close to what you have in the King James, is uh, the phrase above all things or in reference to all things. That's actually the first uh, phrase that you run into in the Greek. It's peri plus a genitive apontone, meaning concerning everything or in reference to everything. That's thrown at the front of the sentence for emphasis. But he's saying, I pray, not in everything or with reference to everything, but I pray that you may prosper. I pray that you may prosper. Now, here's another important word. It's the Greek word, euodao. Euodao. And it simply means to be well. Etymologically, this comes from a word that's prefix is eu. Whenever you have that eu prefix, those two vowels, in a Greek word, it has the idea of something that's beneficial, something's good for you, something that is that is, uh, it's well. For example, we have the word in English euphoric, 
or eulogize. Eulogize means to, from logos, to speak or to say, to say something good about somebody. Uh, and uh, euphoric is a feeling of, of goodness, a, a feeling of, of well-being. So it's that eu prefix has something to do with being well or being good, plus the word hadas, which is the word for a path, a journey, a travel going on, going on your way. So this word, uodao, uh, was a word used in everyday idiom for just having a pleasant day. Have a good day. Hope things go well with you today. Uh, you know, we'd say have a good one. Uh, just do well today. It was that idea. The broad range of the uh, <clears throat> of the word would be used that hoping things turned out well, wishing someone had success during the day, not in the sense of you know, hope you make a lot of money today, but just that things go the way you want them to go today, that your journey would go well, to have a good and safe journey through one's life. In the Greek world, this was a common greeting used in letters of that day for wishing someone success in life. And it's in that sense, it's not a divine promise of material success or financial abundance, but that is how it has been misinterpreted and misapplied today. So John says, I wish or I pray above all things that things would go well with you. That's actually the way it should be translated, that things would go well with you and you would be in health. And this second word, is the word is the word uh, hugiano? It's both of these words, huodao and hugiano, are infinitives of result, and this word is spelled like this, hugiano. H u g i a n o, and this is a standard word that is used for health. Standard word for health, physical well-being. But it had a broader meaning as well. It had a generic sense of stability, that things in life were, would be well-balanced and temperate. In the classical Greek world, one of the philosophers was Alchemion, and he thought that health was preserved through a balance of forces, moist, dry, cold, and hot, bitter, and sweet. As long as you balance all these things, then you would have uh, health. And that went along with ancient Greek ideas that health was based on having a certain harmony of the elements in the body. So this word came to be a word for just general health and well-being. So when John says, I, I, I pray that things would go well with you and you would be healthy in all things, He's just making a general statement about to a personal friend that I hope everything's going well with you. And then he adds a final phrase to this that gives it a spiritual emphasis. Just as your soul prospers. And there the word prosper is a repetition of that first word we looked at, euodao. And there he's emphasizing that physically you might be as healthy and stable as your soul is now because you have reached spiritual maturity. Now, we probably won't get to a discussion of that last phrase this week because we need to take some time to focus on, a, on learning some aspects of discernment. It is vital that a pastor, a shepherd, to his sheep teach discernment, teach people how to think See, the way that Satan so often confuses, distracts, and distorts is because people just don't think. 
and they don't think very clearly. And one of the things that often happens is you'll hear somebody, you may sit here for a number of years listening to me teach, and I use certain phrases. We're going to see one in our example today. For example, I talk about Christ died a spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, and you hear that phrase. And then you may go home one afternoon, and you're bored, you get on the television, you're channel surfing, not local channels, but you have satellite, you can pick up the heretics, and you flip over to... You flip over to TBN, and you hear all of a sudden you turn on uh, one of these health and wealth gospel guys. You don't know them from the man in the moon. And you hear him talk about Christ's spiritual death, and you go, wow, that's what Robbie says. This guy must be pretty squared away. Don't bet on it. You have to learn to listen with discernment. And if you don't, you will go through life either using your brain to the same level that the maple tree in your yard uses one, or you will be deceived and led astray and be a complete failure in the spiritual life. So we need to learn how to think, how to think critically, and to do that you have to understand something about the icks, acts, and spasms that uh, are characterize the world in which we live. Furthermore, some of you have relatives that are all caught up in these kinds of false teachings. And so sometimes they will engage you in conversation, and you need to be able to follow the principle of 1 Peter uh, 3.15 and give an answer for the hope that is in you. You need to be able to explain why you believe what you believe. You don't want to be put in the embarrassing position of having somebody say, well, why don't you believe that God wants you to be prosperous and healthy and have you just sit there and, well, you know, I know it's somewhere in the Bible. I've heard a uh, pastor talk about this, but I can't do it. And you can't. And sometimes you say, well, I can give you the principles, but I can't go to the Bible. Principle. If you can't go to the Bible, your principles probably aren't any better than anybody else's principles. And that's an important thing to realize. If you're in a discussion with somebody, the authority isn't some abstract theological principle that you think is generally true. Authority is in the Word of God itself. And we need to be able to show people what the Scripture says and not what Pastor Dean said. We need to show what the Scripture says and not say, well, the Bible says somewhere, somehow, in some way. I mean, that is the position of an absolute fool who doesn't want to learn to think critically or to learn the Scriptures. And the Scripture clearly um, commands us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And the third reason we go through this is because it will strengthen your confidence in what you have been taught when you get out in the marketplace of theological ideas and you will know why you believe what you believe, even though there may be various people around you who think differently. So what is this thing called prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel? Well, first of all, it goes by several different names. Sometimes it's known as the health and wealth gospel. That's the most popular term, prosperity gospel. It's also known as the faith movement or the word of faith movement. Now, a lot of people don't use that, may not be familiar with that terminology, but you'll see it on some of their churches uh, word of faith, and this really brings in the Gnostic element 
of this. You know, we've studied Gnosticism in 1 John and 2 John as a major problem that was affecting the early church. You had incipient Gnosticism in the first century, and that developed into full-blown Gnosticism in the second century. Gnosticism was the idea that I need to find out the, the secret knowledge. That's the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. Find out the secret secret knowledge. If I just had the secret handshake, the secret password, the secret initiation rite, if then I will have the key to health and prosperity and success in life and happiness in life. But I just have to learn that 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 special formula, that secret knowledge. And of course, it was very esoteric and. The Gnostics had their own idea of the ultimate realities in the universe, and you had God, uh, the the Old Testament God, who was a harsh and mean God, and then he generated uh, another deity that was Jesus, and Jesus is the good God, so you have this dualism at work there. And then Jesus sort of has these other emanations that come out from him called the eons, and there's this hierarchy of spirit beings. And you have to learn all about all these different hierarchies of spirit beings and learn how to control the different spirit beings and what your prayers can do. And and all of this just mystical mumbo-jumbo that entranced people because they felt like if you're going to know God and have a relationship with God, God's pretty complex. He's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Therefore, I can't really understand him. So it can't be as simple as the Bible says I must have to really come to grips with some sort of complex, esoteric, difficult process in order to have a relationship with God. Well, that was the early church, the early Greek form of Gnosticism. But in Gnosticism, you always had something outside of God, and that was these Gnostic principles. They're sort of abstract principles that exist outside of God, and even God is subject to. And that's the same thing that you see in this in the Word of Faith movement, is they abstract this principle of faith to a principle that even God is subject to. And so faith in and of itself becomes a metaphysical principle of power. And the way they talk about faith uh, reveals this. So it is a neo-Gnostic movement. It's also called the born-again Jesus movement. And that brings in the idea, you don't hear that term very much, but that brings in the idea that their, their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible and doesn't do what the Jesus of the Bible does. It's also called the name-it-and-claim-it theology because of their emphasis on positive confession. So we're going to look at a different number of these ideas to give you an idea of what is involved in this neo-Gnostic heresy. Their basic thought is that all growing and spiritually mature Christians should be living lives of total material success, physical health, and financial wealth, which is attained through a positive confession of faith. In other words, if you're sick, you get even get a headache. That's a sign that you're not trusting God, that you're carnal, that you don't know anything about the Bible. You're not using faith at all in your life. And if you're poor, Jesus died for the sin of poverty. And if you're poor, you're just not trusting Jesus. Jesus wants to bless you with every financial blessing, and he freed you or redeemed you from the sin of poverty. So they make poverty a sin. They make sickness in and of itself a sin. So there is a distorted view of the of the atonement. Now, where did all of this come from? See, nothing just pops up. 
See, we have to understand history. People who do not know history are doomed to repeat history. And people think that they just see somebody like Frederick, Fred Casey Price or Oral Roberts or Ken Hagen or one of these other guys on television that, that this stuff just sort of came up in the 50s or 60s, and that's not true. It has its roots in, in the uh, early part or middle part of the 19th century. Many assume that all charismatics have this same sort of view, and that's not true. In fact, the Assemblies of God has uh, uh, has a statement out proclaiming this to be a heresy, which is one reason that denomination has been shrinking over the last 30 years, because, and you've had this rise of independent churches because they've they've been uh, they've been charismatic or Pentecostal, but they were they got into name it claim it stuff, so they got kicked out of the Assemblies of God, and they started their own independent congregations, and they co-opted the term. Uh, interdenominational or non-denominational. When I was young, if you went to an independent Bible church, you went to a non-denominational church, and it wasn't charismatic. Today, if you ask somebody where they go to church, and they say, well, it's a non-denominational church, that's become a code word for a charismatic church, probably a health and wealth gospel church. They've just taken over that terminology. Charismatics have a have a propensity for taking over good biblical terminology and distorting it in heretical ways. Words like charismatic are solid biblical words, which we'll get into in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Same thing with with the, uh, with holiness. Holiness is spiritual maturity in terms of practical holiness, but but they they're, they've taken it over in terms of the holiness movement, and this is just a perversion of biblical terminology. The most influential charismatic, though, that got into uh, health and wealth teaching was a man named Kenneth Hagin Sr., and he's considered the father of this word of faith, health and wealth, born-again Jesus theology, but it's a very different form of healing than traditional charismatics held to. And, in fact, some of the better critiques of all of this kind of theology comes from uh, other Pentecostals and classic Pentecostals and charismatics. Well, where did this come from? Well, word of faith teaching is really the, the result of a combination of ideas that rose in the 19th century. On the one hand, you had the development among non-Christians of the transcend, uh, transcendental Transcendental thinking and uh, came out of especially New England, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, David Thoreau, the idea that it, this is almost a pantheistic view that God is in everything and above everything. God is not imminent to his creation. He's just transcendent, and you can't really know him. And so once you get God so far out there you can't know anything about him, then you, the only way you know anything is to generate it out of yourself. So it has this uh, very mystical uh, emphasis. Then you also have, at the same time, coming out of uh, Boston initially and then spreading its ugliness throughout the world, is Unitarianism. And these two guys kind of hooked up in the first part of the 19th century and produced all kinds of social evil that continues to plague American society because of its rejection of God's view of man and the nature of sin. Then on top of this, you pick up uh, another thing that came along uh, at this same time, and that was a type of thinking called New Thought Metaphysics. 
And this is the idea that man's thinking can control his environment. If you just think about something long enough and hard enough, you can create or generate your own reality. Now, New Thought Metaphysics had quite a number of different children. This was developed initially by a guy named Phineas Parker Quimby. Uh, Phineas Parker Quimby, who lived from 1802 to 1866. And he was known just by the term Dr. Quimby to his patients and friends. He had a pretty common education and began healing through simple hypnotism, which he picked up from Anton Mesmer. And Mesmer lived back in the 18th century, so this has deep roots. He used hypnotism to develop the idea that you can solve any problem in your life. You just need to sort of have your mind freed from these, uh, these these, uh, these constraints. So he develops this whole metaphysical system of new thought and was the seedbed of much of what has come to be called self-help philosophy. You go down to the self-help section in your local Walden bookstore, Barnes & Noble, or go to Amazon.com, and I would bet that if you trace the ideological roots of every author in that section, they're going to go back to Phineas Quimby. You have people such as Dale Carnegie in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is in a direct lineage from New Thought, Metaphysics, and Quimby. Norman Vincent Peale in his Power of Positive Thinking. Napoleon Hill, which is a must-read for many people in sales, and his <clears throat> idea of his book, Think and Grow Rich. These all have their roots in, in New Thought, Metaphysics. And if you've bought into those philosophies and you try to, to syncretize those with Christianity, you're going to be a failure in your spiritual life because you're using a lot of of ideas and a lot of principles for problem solving that are contrary to the Word of God. In fact, what they emphasize is is human ability. So New Thought Metaphysics is just a loose mixture of all kinds of ideas that were never systematized. It's it's a precursor to the New Age movement. And my favorite phrase is trying to define some of this stuff uh, precisely is like nailing jello to the ceiling. Uh, In the New Testament... Uh, or excuse me, new thought, new thought metaphysics emphasizes the eminence of God, but it also emphasizes the divine nature of man. That man, every man has a spark of divinity in him. That comes out of transcendental movement. So every man has a spark of, of deity in him. That's different from being in the image and likeness of God, by the way. It's not the same thing at all. That every human being has immediately available to him God's power. You can tap into God's power uh, and that's where it gets this metaphysical, I, metaphysical power structure. You just have to know the right word, the right key, the right way of having your own mental attitude, and then you can tap into God's power and the spiritual character of the universe. And sin, according to them, sin, disease, suffering, poverty are all the result of incorrect thinking. Now, that's New Thought Metaphysics. From their view, Jesus was simply a teacher and a healer. He was a mere man. He was not God. He was no more divine than the rest of us because we all have that spark of divinity in us. New thought thinking had strains of monism. That is that ultimate reality is all one. There is no real distinction ultimately. It picks up ideas from ancient Gnosticism and Platonism and well. And in essence, its true belief was that ultimate reality is spiritual and not physical. 
we are just sort of an, an image of ultimate reality. We're like Plato's shadows in the cave. We don't, you're not real. What's real is what's out there in this sort of uh, ultimate reality. And therefore, physical effects are, are merely secondary and they're not real. The human mind, through positive mental attitude uh, can, and positive confession, can change these physical realities and you can change from, from uh, sickness to health, from poverty to wealth. Now, New Thought didn't have any specific dogma or doctrine. It was based on hypnotism and a lot of self-help type of things, and it picked up ideas from social Darwinism, Unitarianism, Transcendentalism, Platonism, Swedenborgianism, and a lot of other isms that were popular at that time. Probably the person that Quimby had his greatest influence on was a woman by the name of Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, who was the founder of Christian Science his thinking was also influential in what has come to be called the unity school of Christianity, uh, divine science, the church of religious science, and these others mind science cults. And that, in, that includes a number of things that are going on today. Uh, uh, John Travolta, I, I, the name escapes me right now, John Travolta and um, um, uh, Dianetics. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard's uh, Dianetics and all of that is all part of this mind science cult type of type of uh, thinking. Another one of his of of Quimby's adherents was a guy by the name of of uh, Charles Emerson, who founded the Emerson College uh, and School of Oratory in Boston. So you have this direct line from Anton Mesmer to uh, uh, Mesmer to Quimby to Charles Emerson, and then one of Emerson's famous students was a man by the name of E.W. Kenyon, who lived from 1867, dies the year after Quimby, and dies in 1948. Kenyon is the real grandfather of the Word of Faith Movement. He began life as a Methodist, later became a Baptist, ended up in Boston in the late uh, 1890s where he enrolled in the Emerson School and drank up the teachings on New Thought metaphysics. He thought that the problem with Methodism was that there wasn't enough of the blood of Christ in, uh, uh, that there wasn't enough stuff biblical in Methodism and that there wasn't enough of the blood of Christ in Christian science. So he's reacting to these things. Methodists were going liberal by that time, so they weren't very biblical. And uh, in Christian science, well, you know, they didn't talk too much about Christ or the atonement, so he tried to go in and proof text uh, his views and recreate his own ideas. And his books were then picked up and and plagiarized by Kenneth Hagen Sr. Now, I don't say that in a pejorative way. I have read at least three master's theses and doctoral dissertations, and there's two or three different books that have been published. You can go on the Internet, and you can find charts on the Internet paralleling passages. I'm not talking about a few sentences or paragraphs. I'm talking about pages of Kenyon stuff on one column and then the parallel out of Kenneth Hagin's books on another column. But Kenneth Hagin said 
when he was first told, or he claims that he was first told about Kenyon in 1950, two years after Kenyon died, uh, that he says, no, I've never heard of the man. And then he went to read Kenyon's stuff, and he said, well, you know, when you're teaching the truth, everybody comes up with the same thing and began to rationalize it. But you can't rationalize that level of plagiarism. So Kenneth Hagin uh, base, basically borrowed or stole everything from E.W. Kenyon and patched it up with a lot more Bible verses and biblical terminology and began to teach this neo-Gnostic heretical theology. There was he, he was very popular. He was close to Oral Roberts, and they both have Bible institutes in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then back in the 60s, an impoverished student came to, came to um, uh, Kenneth Hagin's Rhema Bible Institute and wanted to learn the Bible. And this young man said, well, I can't buy any tapes. I'll trade you my car for them. And, and um, uh, Kenneth Hagin, I think Kenneth Hagin Jr.'s uh, brother-in-law, his name was Harrison, uh, was talking to him, took one look at the car and said, no, you just take the tapes. And um, that man, that young boy, that young man at that time was Kenneth Copeland, who is now considered to be the foremost spokesman, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, for this health and wealth gospel. They've also influenced many, many others. This theology was originally declared to be heretical and was rejected by the Assembly of God and most conservative Pentecostals, but now it is the dominant theology among Pentecostals. So that gives you just an idea of where this thing comes from and who these people are, that its roots are not biblical exegesis. Its views are a hodgepodge and amalgam of all kinds of different Gnostic, transcendental, uh, self-help type of ideas and I think much of it comes straight out of uh, demon possession and demon influence. So what do they believe? If all of this is so bad, what is it that they believe? What do they believe about God? Always look at something. If you're going to critique a theological system, you start with God. What do they think about God? What do they think about the Bible? What do they think about Jesus in his person? What do they think about Jesus in his work on the cross? What do, how do they define sin and what sin is, and how do they define the solution for sin? You just break it down in your basic categories and analyze it that way, so we'll do some of that very briefly this morning. What do they view about God? They say that God created the world and does everything by speaking words of faith. God created by faith, and the way they take that is God uses faith to create things. So they view faith as some sort of abstract principle that exists outside of God. Remember, I emphasized again and again and again, maybe not enough, when we were studying Genesis, that when God created the the heavens and the earth, in Genesis 1.1, there were no laws outside of God in existence. God created them all. God creates the laws of physics, the laws of biology. God creates the laws of logic. What we know is the laws of logic are simply a reflection and description of the orderly thinking in the mind of God. But God does not follow some sort of abstract principle. Love does not exist outside of God. God does not live in accordance with some external principle or standard. He is the standard. He is love. He is the embodiment of these things, so you don't have some kind of external external principle of faith that exists. God is then viewed as a faith being. 
In their view, God himself is bound by the forces of the spirit world. This really brings in some of that Gnostic stuff. He's bound by the forces of the spirit world, and he can only operate through the force of faith. Sounds like Star Wars. He's got to tap into this faith force and use this faith force and make a positive confession in order to uh, do anything. So all this means that there's some sort of power over God to which he must appeal and which he must use in order to create things. Therefore, God is less than God in their view. He's not an internally omnipotent God. He is less than God. He's not the creator of everything, for there are certain laws and principles of ultimate reality that are even outside of God that he must conform to. So for them, their God is not the God of the Bible. He, they, 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 they're breaking down the creator-creature distinction. Furthermore, when the Scripture says that man is created in God's image, when we understand who man is, this means that human beings are little gods. We're created like God. If God has to tap into this faith power, this metaphysical power, in order to create things, then we can too. So we're created as little gods, and this really starts blending into Mormonism because you know in Mormonism uh, the, what happens when you die is you, if you've done everything right as a Mormon, you become a little god. And the, they're really polytheistic, and all of us become gods. Well, the same kind of thing is, is true for the uh, uh, positive confession people, the health and wealth people, is we're all little gods, and we can imitate God by speaking the same words of faith with the same creative power. And just as God created his reality by words of faith, you can create your reality by the words of faith. So if you don't like your reality, all you have to do is learn the magic words, and you can create your own reality, and you too can have health and wealth and success and uh, prosperity. So if that's how man was before the fall, what did man become at the fall? Well, at the fall, Adam was, Adam's nature was transformed into Satan's nature. He was in the image of God. Now he's in Satan's nature. See, it's not a sin nature. He has Satan's nature. And Adam's godhood got transferred to Satan. So there's sort of a uh, kidnapping of Adam's deity there. Well, when that's the problem, then in the atonement, Jesus' death must have as its purpose to restore human beings to godhood. And so, and <clears throat> renewed incarnations of God. Now, when we talk about the atonement, they have an extremely demonic view of the atonement. Now, this ought to really get your attention. In the atonement, Kenneth Copeland teaches that Jesus Christ became obedient to Satan and took Satan's nature upon himself. Now, what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that on the cross... Jesus Christ is absolute perfect righteousness. He never loses that per perfect righteousness. He never becomes personally guilty of sin. God the Father, in His perfect righteousness, imputes judicially the sins of the world on Christ. It is a judicial imputation. It is not a real imputation. Jesus doesn't become a fallen creature. He does not personally sin on the cross, and he does not acquire a sin nature. He is judicially and uh, judicially judged 
and he is he becomes spiritually dead in a judicial sense. He is temporarily separated from God the Father so that the sins of the world can be poured out upon him. He does not take on our sin nature and acquire a sin nature. Now, in the Health and Wealth Gospel Theology, according to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus Christ's spiritual death. Now, let's, let me bring this in. When we say Christ died spiritually, what we are saying is that the penalty for sin was spiritual death, not physical death. And that means separation from God. That's what we mean. Understand what spiritual death means. Separation from God and a loss of a human spirit. We're minus a human spirit so we cannot understand the things of God and we cannot do anything that pleases God. And Jesus Christ, when he dies spiritually, he is judicially separated from God between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the cross. That's the time in which he bears our penalty on the cross. That's what we mean by spiritual death. He bears our penalty on the cross. That is not what Kenneth Copeland and the uh, prosperity heretics teach. What they say is that Christ's spiritual death occurred when he suffered in hell at the hands of the demons who tortured him. See, Jesus goes to... The Bible teaches that Jesus goes to Hades and announces the victory that's been performed on the cross. What they've done is distorted that. Jesus is kidnapped off the cross, basically, taken. I mean, when he goes into the grave, Jesus' spirit is taken to to Hades by the demons, and the demons torture him. Because Satan and the demons, according to Copeland, have forgotten that Christ is not a sinner. So they think he's just somebody else, and they drag him to hell and punish him illegally. But he's in hell now, and God has entered the fortresses of the enemy. And so now that Jesus is in hell, God is now able to fill him with words of faith and cause Jesus to be born again as the firstborn from the dead. See how they take biblical terms like firstborn of the dead and born again, and they completely pervert them and give them an entirely new meaning based on coming out of this whole metaphysical theology that they have. So when they talk about Jesus' spiritual death, it is not the same, but they use the same terminology and pervert it. So that is why Christians have to wake up and learn something about the icks, acts, and spasms out there so they can just learn to think and decipher what people are saying about different different things. And uh, they go on to say, when, it talks about, when they talk about salvation, the Word of Faith people teach that Christians at regeneration are then empowered to speak words of faith again and to find health and financial prosperity guaranteed by the cross. So all of this is nothing more than a neo-Gnosticism. The word of faith gospel has a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different God. To access their God, you have to have a special knowledge or gnosis in order to achieve health and wealth and prosperity. And now how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, we've looked at their basic do- doctrines of, of God and man and salvation. Their methodology is positive confession. Positive confession means to think you have to visualize what you want, which is a 
which is an occult uh, methodology borrowed from Hinduism. And a believer is to visualize what he wants, and then he speaks that into existence with his mouth. It's a form of, of magic. And what is confessed then is supposed to come to pass. They say that if a believer wants to be successful over their circumstances, they must confess it positively. No negative thinking here. You can't admit that you have a headache. You can't, and there's real dangers there. I mean, if you have physical pains, you can't admit it because you're not trusting God if you admit that. So, uh, uh, faith's positive confession creates a positive reality. For them, a negative confession will create a negative reality. See, if you've got problems in your life, if you're, you're sick, if you don't have enough money, if you can't pay your bills, it's because you're thinking negative thoughts. And your thoughts change reality. So for them, salvation, health, and prosperity all must be spoken by the mouth in order to come into existence. Of course, if this were true, Moses, Job, Jeremiah, David, Jonah, and Elijah would all have problems because they all got pretty, pretty depressed at times in their spiritual life. And their words and their negative confessions would have created all kinds of disaster. Remember, Elijah asked God to take his life in 1 Corinthians 19.4, but his words could not change God's plan and God's purposes. Eventually, when it was according to God's timing, God took Elijah to heaven in a chariot of fire in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. Frankly, a visualization and positive confession would automatically equal reality. Most of us would have won the lottery at least 10 or 15 times. We would all be incredibly wealthy like, uh, like J.B.P. Morgan. We would write like Shakespeare. We would have the business success of a Bill Gates or the intelligence of a Stephen Hawking or the evangelistic successes of a Billy Graham. Uh, we wouldn't be the, the losers that health and wealth gospel says that we are. We're just a bunch of people who confess uh, negatively. So we have to realize that, that this teaching that dominates so much today is just completely unbiblical and based on false uh, false exegesis of passages. Third John 2 is a key verse that they use, and often you will see this emblazoned on the wall behind them when you're flipping around channel surfing. They'll have that verse up there on the wall or in their logo somewhere. Now, another verse that they go for has to do with uh, divine healing. See, this is a na- another major plank in their thinking, is that what John is saying here is, I pray that you may prosper in all things. That means make a lot of money means make a lot of money, and that you may be in health, that is, you can't ever be sick. For them, healing and positive confession are inseparable. Kenneth Hagin said, when, when many people who have come to be healed confess in faith and pray and then come back, they are told that they, they denied their healing and the Word of God. Their denial has nullified my original prayer and destroyed the health that God already gave them. See, the guilt that this engenders is just incredible and he in fact he i've heard him say that if he had a headache uh he wouldn't tell anybody because that would be a negative confession and so you're living at this level of denial he says he hadn't had a headache in like 40 years or at least at the time he wrote the book he said he hadn't had a headache in like 34 35 years that is living in denial and of course the implications are that you could get yourself in some serious health crises and many people have gotten in serious health crises because they just think that God doesn't want them to be sick, so they'll continue to believe that Jesus died 
for the sin of sickness on the cross. Now, what does the Bible teach about that? See, the verse that they go to is Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. And this is how it reads. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is a verse that is it's poetry, and it is, it is using metaphor and imagery to describe the atonement and how Christ paid the penalty for our sins and, and consequence takes care of the consequences for our sins. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon, upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. See, they'll say, by His scourging we're healed. And that, as a result of the atonement, we have healing. Now, first of all, that violates the context of this passage. Second, we have to understand that the Hebrew word used to translate uh, healing is the Hebrew word rapha. In fact, that word rapha has been picked up by some psychological clinic around the country, and they have these, they call it rapha. They mispronounce the Hebrew rapha hospitals. Um, R-A-P-H-A-H. And it primarily has the idea of spiritual recovery, not physical healing, as in Jeremiah 3, verse 22. Primarily has the idea of spiritual recovery, not physical healing. But it does appear, like verse 5 suggests, that by his scourging we are healed, but this is really qualified and clarified in the Gospels. Matthew 8:16 and 17 were told, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the demons with a word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, "He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases." Once again, in order to understand this, we have to go back to the Scripture and realize that there is a difference between the penalty for sin and the consequences of that penalty, which we have studied in Genesis. The penalty was spiritual death, separation from God in time, and if you're not, if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, separation from God in eternity. Consequences included effects on the animals, so that the serpent had to now crawl. Animals changed from being herbivores to carnivores. They had an effect on the woman, so that there was now pain and uh, labor in childbirth. It changed the uh, biology or botany because now thorns and thistles were going to come out of the ground. Now all of the all of these things are the consequences of sin, including physical death. From from dust you came to dust you will return. Physical death is a consequence, as is physical sickness. Now, because Jesus died on the cross and solved the problem of the penalty of sin, he eventually is going to be able to solve all the problems of the consequences of sin. But this doesn't happen until the second advent, when the lion will lay down with the lamb, and when we're in heaven and in our resurrection body, and there's no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pains, for the old things are passed away. Jesus conquered, he died physically on the cross to demonstrate that he was going to conquer all of the consequences of sin, the greatest of 
of which was physical death, and in his resurrection, he demonstrated that not only had he paid the uh, judicial penalty of sin on the cross, but he conquered, would conquer all of the consequences of sin. But this doesn't happen in our lifetime. We still have thorns and thistles. You still have to cut your grass. Uh, uh, You still don't want to go walking into the lair of a lion or a tiger. All of those were consequences of sin. All of those will be dealt with because of the atonement as secondary effects and consequences, but that doesn't mean that they are to be in effect today. One of the greatest charges and lies of the health and wealth crowd is that those of us who don't believe in charismatic forms of healing don't believe God heals. God still heals, but God is sovereign, and he heals who he will when he will. It's not determined or manipulated by human beings. I remember the first time I ran into this, I was teaching at at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston back in 1984, I think it was. And on the first day of class, there was a lady who came out of class, and she said, well, I just don't agree with your view of God. I don't even remember what I was teaching on that day. It wasn't this. She said, I don't agree with your view of God. See, God is like a Coke machine. You just do the right thing, like put in a quarter, and you'll get out a can of Coke. You can tell this was a few years ago. But if you just do the right thing, God will always respond the same way. They treat God as a machine who himself is subject to certain external laws. So we have to be careful with how people use and distort Scripture. We live in an age of as much heresy and as much distortion as the time of the early church. And one of the greatest, of course, is a distortion of grace. People today don't understand grace. The health and wealth gospel uh, crowd do not understand grace. They don't understand God's logistical grace. They don't understand the sovereignty of God. They don't understand the fact that God is going to provide all of our needs, but that doesn't mean he's going to give us everything we want and make every one of us extremely wealthy. God brings tests, financial tests, health tests, uh, physical tests, weather-related tests, system tests from the people we work are the organizations we work in people tests from the people we work in all of those tests all that suffering is used by God in order to teach us to trust him to rely upon him to utilize the spiritual skills that we have studied in scripture a confession of sin when we blow it and we try to handle it our own so that we can get back in fellowship walking by the spirit a faith rest drill all of these are important learning uh, doctrinal orientation and grace orientation, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ and, and perfect happiness, sharing the happiness of Christ. All of these are the spiritual skills we have to master to solve the problems. It doesn't mean the problems go away. It means that even in the midst of horrible circumstances and extreme suffering, we can have joy, stability, peace, calm, and happiness knowing that God is in in control. There never was a problem that you or I will face that God did not know about in eternity past and make provision for. He's not some uh, super Santa Claus or genie that you can just uh, rub his belly the right way and you're going to get everything you want. And yet this is the lie. It appeals to so many superficial people who are hurting and having difficult times in their life. They think they can just find some quick fix solution and it is no solution 
the only solution is the divine solution in Scripture, which is what we will look at next time, understanding why John could say to Gaius that he, he wished that he would prosper as his soul prospered. How does our soul prosper? Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for all that you have provided for us in, in grace through our salvation and the work that was done on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Father, all they need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Jesus paid the penalty in full. There's nothing that we can do to add to that. There's nothing that we can do to to impress God. There's nothing that we can do to aid the work of Christ. We have to believe that Jesus' death and faith in his death alone is all that is necessary for salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, challenge us with them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.